thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. Good evening and welcome to this Bible study on the history of the covenant or the covenantal timeline. We know from scripture that history is important because we find it recorded in the book of Exodus. We find it recorded in the book of Samuel, first and second, and in the book of Kings. We also find it recorded in the book of Chronicles. And it is alluded to by many of the prophets. So historical events are very important for us if we are to truly understand Scripture in its context. Recall that we've covered the four senses of Scripture. And the purpose of the four senses of Scripture is to precisely help us understand that the literal sense, the literal sense of Scripture, is the sense according to the intention, the historical, contextual intention of the author. And that the three other senses, the moral senses, or spiritual senses, that is, I'm sorry, the spiritual senses, are built upon the literal sense. So that if we are to derive a proper moral sense, how Scripture applies to me today, typically that cannot be done without a proper understanding of the literal sense. What was the original intent of the author? so that the moral sense may be adequately built on solid foundation. And that is why the historical sense, the, histor the history of the chosen people, the covenantal timeline is important for us. Notice also that in that uh, uh, sentence, covenantal timeline, I am speaking of the covenant. The covenant is not a set of rules that God gave us and that sort of sit aside from our daily lives. The covenant is embedded in history. As a matter of fact, I would argue that the covenant is what makes history. It is the prima causa, the first cause of history in that we men react to or are um, um, governed by the covenant and all our historical actions find echo in the covenant and responses from the covenant. So it is through the covenant that God rules over history and this is something that we're going to find embedded in a very powerful and central way in the book of Revelation 
when we get to the study of the book of Revelation, but not just the book of Revelation. It is also embedded in the prophets. It is also embedded in the Gospels and in the Acts. Because our religion is an incarnate religion. It is a religion where God has become a man and walked among us. Walking among us means that he shared with our history. The religion is incarnate, meaning it is also incarnate in history. It is The religion is part of our living. There is no such thing as a separation between what we live and what we believe. They are one and the same. And that is so important for us to understand. And what we're going to do tonight is look at, take sort of a, an eagle's view or a um, for 40,000 feet view of covenantal history. So we can see it in its, uh, um, in its entirety, how it started and where it led to. And then we're going to focus on the ten plagues of Egypt as they have occurred uh, in uh, when the um, people of God was, to, was confronted to Pharaoh who was the main obstacle for the fulfillment of the covenant. We're going to try and understand those ten, uh, ten plagues in their historical context and understand what God was trying to do through those ten plagues. Effectively, the ten plagues of Egypt are a, a manifestation of God's psychology, if you will, how God deals with us, because you will see that they were really fitted to the context in which the Egyptians and the Israelites lived when, they, uh, when these events took place. By the way, you hear me say Israelites, and I will remind you of the differences from a biblical standpoint between these three words, Hebrew, Israelite, and Jew. They are not interchangeable precisely because they refer to different historical periods and different groups of people from a biblical standpoint. A Hebrew is a descendant of Eber, a forefather of Abraham. Therefore, Hebrew, the term Hebrew, from a genealogical standpoint, uh, used to include a much wider variety of people, even though it applied mostly to the Israelites but it, it included all those who descended from Eber, at least from a theoretical standpoint, if not practical. It was important for the ancients to know where they, were, where they came from, to know who they were and how they relate to each other. And we need to understand that so that we, make a sense, we can make sense of these words. An Israelite is a descendant of Israel, who is Jacob. And therefore, an Israelite is any any descendant of the twelve sons of Jacob, Israel. A Jew is primarily a descendant of Judah, the fourth son of Israel. And to a certain uh, extent, once the kingdom of David um, was split between the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah, that term, Judean or Jew, started to also include the tribe of Benjamin because Jerusalem was um, located in a territory of the tribe of Benjamin. And when the split happened, 
Judah was not about to let Benjamin go with Jerusalem. So therefore, it also included or came to become, it, the term became synonymous historically with all those who lived in the kingdom of Judah. So not all Jews are Israelites and not all Israelites are uh, I'm sorry, not all uh, Israelites are Jews, and not all Hebrews are Israelites. We need to keep those distinctions in mind. So having said all that, let's take a look at this timeline, that, uh, at the covenantal timeline. So uh, according to our best estimates from history, in 1876, or there are about 1876 before Christ, so you sort of start, start counting negatively, if you will, from the birth of Christ, moving backward in time. You'd get then to 1876. Uh, Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. And, you know, this is related to us in, uh, uh, in Genesis uh, around the story of Joseph. Uh, remember that Joseph was sold by his brothers to Egyptians who took, who took him to slave merchants, who took him down to Egypt, and he was sold. And then he was the only one to interpret the Pharaoh's dream, and he rose to power. And eventually he was able to receive his father and brothers. And that's how the Israelites came to Egypt and lived in an area called Goshen. And you will find these uh, this, uh, the, this bit of history related in Genesis Chapters 45 through 50. And um, in 1491, so now we dro- we're jumping about 385 years forward. In 1491, the Israelites, under the leadership of Moses, left Egypt. And that is uh, related principally in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, four of the, uh, the the four other books of the Pentateuch. The Pentateuch are the first five books of Scripture: Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And then in fourteen forty eight, the years of wandering uh, began. So uh, fourteen forty eight uh, through fourteen ten. Uh, the the uh, people of God wandered in the desert. And that's about 38 years of wandering. And they enter um, the promised land under the leadership of Joshua and conquers Jericho. And this is the, that bit of it, the entering into the promised land and the conquering of, jo- of Jericho and the beginning of the conquest of the promised land is found in the book of Joshua. Then in 1410 through 1050, from 1410 through 1050, we have what is called the years of the judges, or the era of the judges, when the people of God were governed by a series of judges, Joshua being the first one, Samson being also a judge, Gideon, Deborah, and others. And you find the, uh, the story of the judges related in the book of Judges, Judith, and Ruth. And so from 1410 B.C. through 1050 B.C., about 360 years, 
we have that part of the history known as the years of the judges. In 1003 BC, the conquest of Jerusalem takes place and it is the establishment of the David, the, uh, Davidic kingdom. So the kingdom of David, so there's a milestone if you will, if you were thinking in terms of milestones right now, things to remember, you can think of it this way. In about 1410, right, so it, it, let's back up and, 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 and make it a little bit simpler. Around 1800 BC, the Israelites went down to Egypt. Then about 1500 BC, they came out of Egypt. And about 1000 BC, the kingdom of David was established. So you can think of this whole period, about 800 years. If you now tack on Abraham and what happened to him, then you could pretty much, again, in broad terms, think of it as about a millennia. From, the, uh, from Abraham leaving Ur to the conquest of Jerusalem and establishment of the kingdom of David, there's about a thousand years. And then, from the kingdom of David to the coming of Christ, there's another thousand years. So, so that's a um, fairly simple way of thinking about it. Uh, it's not too far from reality. It's not exactly, it's not precise, but it's not far from reality. Now, as I said, in uh, 1003, the, king, the conquest of Jerusalem takes place and the kingdom of David is established. And this is related to you in First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. And also, so this is related to you in those books from a historical perspective. The, there is a reflection on these events that is found in the books of Scripture which fall under the um, category of wisdom. And uh, then you can find references to those events in the book of Psalms, uh, primarily because the book of Psalms is written, for the most part, by David himself. Book of Proverbs, the book of the Ecclesiastes, the Song of Songs, and the book of Wisdom. All these books are a reflection on the covenantal history. So this is how you kind of relate them together when you're thinking about Scripture how uh, scripture flows. Genesis is effectively relating to us all the events, all the historical events, and all the sort of lessons learned or lessons taught that occur between the creation of Adam until the Exodus. And then the, the historical books, from including Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the book of Joshua, the book of Judges, Judith and Ruth, First and Second Samuel's, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. All those books are telling us what happened from a historical standpoint when the between the time that the Israelites left Egypt until the establishment of the kingdom of David. So, in a sense, the as the uh, drama of um, the covenant continues between those who are faithful to the covenant, such as Shem, 
the firstborn son of Noah, and those who are not, such as Ham and his descendants. And out of that comes all the nations, and then we see the, the God choosing Abraham and all that happens to him through Jacob, and then they go to Egypt. And all, all that is essentially, you can think of it as sort of a valley. There is a first, there is a peak in a sense, it's not really related to a kingdom, but it is a peak when God chooses Abraham and finally Abraham is faithful to the call of God when he offers Isaac as a sacrifice. But it's a hidden peak. It isn't something that's really visible. And then we go through this valley again until we peak with Jerusalem. Jerusalem, when David is now a king, reigning there, and he is thinking about, his desire is to build God a house, and he makes that desire known to Nathan, and Nathan answers back and saying, No, David, God is going to build you a house, meaning a dynasty, and it is your son who is going to build me a house. And so it will be Solomon who is effectively going to build God a house. And we see that uh, right around um, the year 966. So right around 966, the temple of Jerusalem is complete. And it was started in 972. And then 72 years later, 72 years later, the kingdom of David is broken into the kingdom of of the north, which will be then known as the kingdom of Israel, and the kingdom of the south, known as the kingdom of Judah. So, the kingdom of David lasted about 69 years, from 10,003 all the way to 1931. And I don't mean King David as a king, but I really mean the kingdom established in Jerusalem, with Jerusalem as the capital, lasted about 69 years before it was broken. And we will understand why it was broken a little bit later. That is related to us in the second book of Chronicles. And the prophets, we see the first wave of prophets that suddenly appear on the scene. They were not there before. Now they are coming, they're present. And we see the prophet Amos, who will who was sent to the kingdom of Israel between the, the years 781 and 741, the prophet Hosea, 750 to 725, the prophet Jonah, 765 to 759, and the prophet Nahum, which is about 721. We're not really sure. These prophets are the first wave and their message, if we were to sort of boil it down, is to the kingdom of Israel, we do not blame you to separate yourself from the corrupt political ruling in Jerusalem. We, that's not what, why God sent us to talk to you. God sent us to talk to you because instead of remaining faithful to his covenant by sacrificing only in the temple of Jerusalem, as he has asked you to do, you decided that you would be better sacrificing on Mount Gerizim and you built yourself an altar, violating God's covenant. So effectively, you see that the prophets being sent to the kingdom of Israel were covenantal messengers delivering a covenantal lawsuit saying, repent, return to Jerusalem, sacrifice to me in Jerusalem, or else.
And by the way, let's really understand what God meant when he said sacrifice to me. Because we could be tempted to think that this is all formality. God is upset with them because they broke a rule, which is your sacrifice in Jerusalem. It's a little bit more than that. You see, God was not interested in them sacrificing bulls and lambs. What he was really interested is in them being able to live according to the law of the covenant, the Ten Commandments, and to lead a moral life. To be faithful to him by indeed following the rules, which is to go to Jerusalem and sacrifice only in the temple of Jerusalem. And that meant that they would have compunction of heart, they would be humble, they would obey him, they would accept his rules, they would put up with the fact that the Jews might jeer at them because they're coming to the temple, they may put up with difficulties because they would have to effectively submit to the ruling of the kings of Judah, who were not necessarily a paragon of morality. They would have to do all that in order to remain faithful to the covenant. Instead, they rebelled and built their own temple. You can see one more time, you can see one more time, a shade or an echo of the rebellion of Adam and Eve, so that instead of adoring God in truth and in spirit, they decided to raise themselves up on a pedestal and adore themselves. And that's why these prophets were sent to them during this period. So for about 72 years, 72 years, these prophets are coming in waves telling them, repent or else, repent or else, and they were consistently ignored. Rebuked, laughed at, and looked upon as crazies. These prophets are no prophets of God, because we, the kings of Israel, have our own prophets who are telling us everything is fine. God loves us, God is with us, and he's going to support us and help us. And um, perhaps a key takeaway for us today is to realize how what, what, what those prophets were telling these Israelites. You have to be faithful to the covenant by going physically to that building, which is the temple in Jerusalem. There is no separation in God's mind between the physical representation of the religion and the way you live it. There's no such thing as, I will go and adore God in my house and it doesn't matter. There's no such thing as, well, the church is just a group of people who believe in God. No, it's not biblical. In the Bible, and we can see it clearly here, God is asking them to sacrifice only in one place. If he had in mind a notion of the people of God as being all those who believe in him, he would have allowed them to sacrifice anywhere. But precisely because they lost that right, he's asked them to go to his priest, the one he appointed as priest, and they would be the one who would sacrifice on their behalf so that the sacrifice may be acceptable. And today, those who within the church have this notion that all that they need to do is pray at home or pray by themselves or not go to Mass. And those who are without the church who assume that the church is just, you know, all those who believe in God, both hold to a view that may be consoling, may be comfortable, but is non-biblical. This is not how God sees it. 
He's never seen it like this in the past. He didn't see it when Jesus was like this, when Jesus was on earth. For Jesus said, I will build, build, build. He used the word build. My church, only one singular on you, Peter. You don't build an idea, you build a building. You build something physical and concrete. I just wanted to point that to you as an aside. So then in 722, we witness the fall of the northern kingdom at the hands of the Assyrians. The ten tribes are scattered beyond recognition. They cannot come back. Again, related to us historically in the second book of Chronicles. And it is announced by the prophet Zephaniah between 641 and 611. Um, well, maybe not Zephaniah because he just doesn't fit this period. He, he came, he, Zephaniah may have related to it. Micah 740 to 698, Isaiah 745 to 698, Jeremiah as well, and Habakkuk, who 627 and 585, and 605 and 600. So in fact, Zephaniah, Jeremiah, and Habakkuk talk about it after the fall took place, not before. And then, in 120 years later, it is now the turn of... Jerusalem. It is the turn of Judah to be subdued by the Babylonians. And so that happens in 602. And this is again related to us by the prophets Joel, Jeremiah, Habakkuk, and Daniel. Joel, Jeremiah, Habakkuk, and Daniel. 561 to 485, in the case of Daniel, although we're not completely sure of this date. And in 587, 135 years later, so the Babylonians subdued Jerusalem, uh, Judah, in 602. And then in 587, because of the rebellion of the king of uh, Judah, they destroyed Jerusalem. And that is also recounted to us by Daniel, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the prophet Obadiah. And from a wisdom standpoint, you read the book of Lamentation, and it's talking about the destruction, the, the subduing of uh, Judah by Babylon. And it is a commentary on those events, and a reflection on why these events happen from a covenantal standpoint. In 587, it is beginning of, it's the beginning of the years of the exile, and we see that in the book of Daniel. In 537... We see uh, the Medo-Persian destroying Babylon. That's also recorded to us in the book of Daniel. And in 536, Cyrus gives his decree to rebuild Jerusalem. Again, in the book of Daniel. In 515, the second temple is rebuilt. Many of us are not aware that there are actually three temples. The temple built by Solomon, which is most famous. The temple built by Herod, which is also famous. But in between these two, there is another temple more modest, which was built in the years 5, who began in the year 515. It's related to us in historically in the book of Esther, but prophetically in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, who were most responsible for the building of the second temple, in the book of Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. All of them are talking about the second temple. Ezra, Nehemiah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. The, in 444, the gates and walls are built around the temple, and that is re related. This is um, indicated to us by Nehemiah, 
chapter 2, verse 1, 5, and 8. Now, you wonder why is that important that Nehemiah will relate to the building of the gates and the walls around the temple. It is important because, as you will see in the book of Daniel, when we study the book of Daniel, the angel Gabriel will tell Daniel that from the rebuilding of the gates and walls until the coming of the one who will be put to death, so many years will happen. Seventy years of week will take place. So from 444 to about... Uh, so 444, and you add 70 years of weeks, which is 490, you are right around the time of Christ. So um, uh, Gabriel prophetically spoke of the coming of Christ to Daniel and told him of the events that will happen between the rebuilding of the gates and that wall around the temple until the coming of Christ. That is why this is a particularly significant event. In 333, Alexander the Great defeats Persia, and in 323, Alexander's empire is divided into four parts. Ptolemies take over Palestine and Egypt. In 199, Seleucid in Syria takes Palestine from Ptolemies, and Antiochus Epiphanes desecrates the temple. This is an important event. So in about 199 before Christ, Antiochus Epiphanes desecrates the temple. And the reason why this is important for us is because in the Gospels, when, the, when Jesus speaks of the um, desecration of the temple, when he says, when you see the... Um, when you see the abomination of desolation in the temple, you will know that. What abomination of desolation is he referring to? It is the, uh, what um, Antiochus Epiphanes had done. He had desecrated the temple by sacrificing a pig in the Holy of Holies. And so that's the abomination of desolation. When you see something that does not belong to the temple, an act of sacrifice that is not offered to God, but offered to uh, effectively... Um, other deities or uh, if, you know demons in a sense, you will know that you really have. You will know that the time has come, and we will talk about the prophetic, the the end times, uh, and apocalyptic genre that we find in the New Testament later, and uh, you'll be able to find all these talks, whether on Daniel or this series, on the website on corbono.com. Um, and you, you, the point here is that all these events and all these books in Scripture are interrelated. They build upon each other. This is the takeaway here for us. This is the lesson we have to understand. Scripture is not a disparate set of books that is sort of ordered uh, randomly. Scripture builds on Scripture and feeds uh, the the um, the next generations of writers, and in particular the book of Revelation, builds upon all this edifice and pulls symbols, symbols and meanings from all of it. And that's why it is, in one sense, uh, more difficult than others, perhaps. In uh, 167, we have the Maccabean Revolt, and uh, leading to an independent Jewish state, and you find this related to us, chronicled to us in the first and second book of Maccabees. 
And after that, in 131, there is a brutal struggle for power between Sadducees and Pharisees. And in 63, Pompey, Romans, essentially the Romans take, take over Israel. And in 27, Caesar Augustus becomes the Roman emperor. In 19 BC, Herod begins building the third temple. And in, a, in between 5 to 3 BC, Jesus is born. And in five, in, in, in about 4 um, AD, or I'm sorry, 4 BC, it is the end of the years of the exile. So about 583 years of exile. So when you add the first 70 years and the 470, the first 70 years that were promised by the prophet Jeremiah, and you add to that the 490 that came after it, you get about 5 80. The, so the first 70 years of exile were prophesied by the prophet Jeremiah. And then uh, Gabriel added to that 490, 70 years of weeks, 7 times 70, 490. You end up with about 580 years of exile. And in 30 A, uh, AD, uh, by the way, B.C. means before Christ, and A.D. means Anno Domini. Uh, I don't know why uh, in English we switch between uh, an English representation, before Christ, and a Latin representation, after Christ. Be it as it may, um, uh, Anno Domini, I mean, instead of A.C. Uh, Jesus is crucified in 30 uh, A.D., and in 70, Jerusalem is raised by Titus. Between 600,000 to 1.2 million Jews die. And that brings about the end of the Old Covenant and the uh, resurgence of the New, or the beginning of the New, not the resurgence, I mean, the beginning of the New. So here we have, in about half an hour, we covered 2,000 years of history. We gave a fairly high-level outline of those key events, and we've related how these, the prophets relate to those events. If you take a little bit of time, you spend a little bit of time to reconstruct what I just discussed today, you would have a much better handle on the books and scripture. You'd be able to place them in its proper context. And also, you will be able to better understand how they relate to each other, which is important when we move into the New Testament and when we start studying the parts of the New Testament that have to do with the Old. This will come in very handy. Now, Having said all that, let's go back to that covenantal historical part that we're looking at right now, which is the leaving, the, the, the parting uh, from uh, Egypt and entering the Holy Land. So I'm really interested in this part where the Israelites are going to leave the land of Egypt and then enter into the Promised Land. And the reason why I'm interested in this uh, segment in a particular way, is because it is uh, very rich covenantally. A lot of the patterns that God will use later, uh, whether to punish Israel or Judah or the other nations, and the patterns that He still uses today with us and with the nations of the, the 21st century are found in this segment here. Um, so that's why I want to focus on it, and that in particular I'm going to be focusing on the ten plagues and try to understand their meaning and why those plagues took place. Every one of us know 
of the Ten Plagues. It is one of the most known, most uh, popular part of scripture. Movies have been made about the Exodus. But let's let's look let's first take a look at those ten plagues and understand them in context. First of all, it is interesting to note that God's intent was not for Israel to leave Egypt, at least not right away. God told Moses of his plan A, which was, Go tell Pharaoh, let my people come out in the desert a distance of three days so that they may worship me. There was no intent on them leaving Israel, at least not uh, right away. And the reason for that is that God wasn't only interested in saving Israel, he was also interested in saving Egypt. And the plan A, effectively, would have established the worship of God, the true worship of God by the Israelites, and they would be able to take that back with them into Egypt, in that they would be able to bring sanctification into Egypt and hopefully convert Egypt. That was God's plan all along, for the eldest brother, Israel, to act as a righteous brother uh, and to bring all his younger siblings to God. Israel, genealogically, according to the genealogy of God, of the righteous children, Israel was the firstborn. And that's why Israel was selected to be the chosen people of God, because they were the firstborn, according to this genealogy. And they were supposed to bring their brother Egypt back to God. Instead, they went down into Egypt, and it was Egypt who brought them to the worship of um, the, um, uh, you know, the multitudes of these gods they had and the demons that hid behind them. So, that was initially God's plan, and of course, he knew beforehand that Pharaoh was not going to listen, and he therefore told uh, Moses about these ten plagues that were going to happen one after the other. He didn't tell him about the ten plagues all at once, but it was one after the other. And between every plague, there was a chance for, for Pharaoh to repent, which is what God was waiting for in a, in a fundamental sense. But God knew already from Pharaoh's previous actions, in particular his desire to kill the children, that Pharaoh was past repentance. Not that he was past God's mercy or outside God's mercy or beyond God's mercy's reach, but that Pharaoh himself, by his own action, had um, had uh, gone beyond God's repentance. One thing we need to realize, all of us, and this is important, is that while God's mercy is infinite, His acts of mercy are not. Meaning that God will bestow mercy upon us for a finite number of time. And if we keep on refusing Him, He will stop. Why? Because it is due to His justice. For St. Bonaventure, who is a father of the church, a doctor of the church, tell us that it, tells us that if God were to bestow infinite gestures of mercy on all of us, then he would uh, effectively be unjust to those who are deserving of heaven by their actions, by the meritorious actions in following him and being in living a life of sacrifice and uh, a life of martyrdom, he would be unjust towards them and God cannot be unjust. In a practical sense, it is obvious that God cannot Uh, treat uh, Judas the same way he treat Mary. Uh, And that's what is meant by that. So 
That's why you see God telling Moses, I will harden his heart. The meaning of this is that he has already gone beyond my mercy and then what he's deserving of is punishment. And a lot of us are sort of uncomfortable with this notion that God can punish anyone. But, uh, and, and perhaps we have the sense that hell is really empty and only the truly exceptionally evil people, evil according to our own criteria of course, are there. But the majority of all of us, 99.99% of us, are in heaven. And we make, therefore, heaven um, very, very accessible. In fact, these days, it seems that it's easier to get to heaven than it is to get to Harvard. Uh, but it's not so in Scripture. Jesus is the one who tells us that wide and easy is the way that leads to partition, and many take it. Many means a lot. And hard, narrow, and difficult is the way that leads to salvation. And few find it. And I think we need to ponder these words and uh, understand that it, it behooves us to be very mindful of the fact that salvation is a serious business. That God wants us to be saved. That God has done everything to save us, but He will not save us without us. And we have our part to play. We have to be faithful to the church. We have to be faithful to her commandments. We have to go to Mass. We have to avail ourselves of the sacraments. And we have to ask for final perseverance every day of our life. And the Rosary is a great way of doing that. Because in the Rosary we pray and say, Pray for us now and at the hour of our death. Therefore we are asking Our Lady to pray that we may persevere all the way through entire life and persevere at the moment of death so that we may reach heaven. So, that explains essentially why uh, we see in Scripture that God is saying, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Now, let's look at those uh, ten plagues. The first plague is when God turns water into blood. Now, the effect of that, let's not worry about why it turns into blood. Let's look at the effect for a second. The effect is that people cannot use water anymore. So, the impact is on the livelihood of people. It is economic. Keep that in mind. Let's now look at the second, which is <clears throat> the frogs. There again, the impact of the frogs is really economic. It, um, it, the, the frogs overran the land of Egypt. Um, the third one, the third plague, is gnats. And again, the gnats covered the land. Um, and the impact is economic. So in, uh, I'll, I'll keep on reading these, and you will see that the focus here is on the economy, on the livelihood. Uh, so the fourth plague are the flies, and the fifth plague is the death of livestock. And so the plague one through five really deal with all that, um, all the economic streams that the Egyptians relied on for their livelihood, for their comfort in life. And all of these are being hit. Now, Plague 5, uh, I'm sorry, Plague 6, is dealing with pest festering boils. And, um, and Plague 7 with hail. So the sixth plague really now touches upon the health of man. And the seventh one touches also upon peripherally on the health of men, for any man who was found outside was uh, died because of the hail. So, um, uh, we, you know, particularly we see that in verse 25, um, 
of um, chapter 9, it struck down every man and beast that was in the open through the land of Egypt. So what is now particular about uh, 6 and 7 is that they are focused on the health of man and on his livelihood. So notice how we move from the outside in, from that which is farthest to man to that which is closest to him. So first it's all the economic streams, then it's his health, then it's his life. And then the eighth plague is that of locusts. And the purpose of this plague is that they will effectively destroy anything that was left. So the first seven plagues, the first five plagues hit the economy, but but they don't destroy it completely only partially. Then we have plague 6 and 7 that are a partial physical punishment to men. Men are hit by the boys, but they don't necessarily die from them, and some die from the hail, but not all. Now, plague 8, 9, and 10 are going to take that to the next level. What was provisionally given becomes final. So, plague 8, the locust comes and they basically destroy everything. And then plague 9 is the darkness. And the darkness wasn't just a physical darkness, an outer darkness. It was also a psychological and spiritual darkness. And you will see this in, um, when, we, when we look at it a little bit more closely. And then finally... The tenth plague is the plague that hits closest because it basically signals the death of every firstborn. That pattern from the outer to the inner is very consistent across scripture and across history. When God is effecting covenantal curses, a covenantal punishment, it typically, on a a national level, it follows that pattern. It goes from the outer to the inner. It starts with the, um, the uh, economic streams, then gets closer with diseases of different kinds, and then finally moves into the psychological, the spiritual, and then finished by a, uh, the death of man. That is the way that these punishments are structured, and they're structured this way for our good. They're structured this way for our good. God is not amused God does not take pleasure in, um, uh, essentially, he's not a sadistic God doing this to see us suffer. He's doing it because he's just, and he's doing it because he's merciful. Now, let's try and take a closer look at these uh, plagues one at a time. So, starting with chapter 7, verse uh, verse 1 and 2. Answered him, meaning Moses, See, I have made you as God to Pharaoh, and Aaron your brother shall act as your prophet. You shall tell him all that I command you. In turn, your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites leave the, his land. This, uh, these particular verses are really interesting because God made Moses as God to Pharaoh, not because Moses wanted to feel really, uh, you know, not, not because Moses was looking for a promotion. The reason why Moses appears as God to Pharaoh is because Pharaoh speaks no other language. He needs somebody who is higher than he. 
uh, remember that Pharaoh considers himself to be God and considers his son to be God. And so when God says to Moses, I have made you as God to Pharaoh, he's basically indicating that Pharaoh will have to listen to him because Moses has the power to speak, the power of a God. Um, and so the first plague comes through in verse 17 through 22. Uh, the Lord now says, This is how you shall uh, know that I am the Lord. I will strike the water of the river with a staff I, uh, I hold, and it shall be changed into blood. So this is Moses speaking. The fish in the river shall die, and the river itself shall become so polluted that the Egyptians will be unable to drink its water. The Lord then said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, their streams, their canals and pools, all their supplies of water, that they may become blood throughout the land of Egypt. There shall be blood, even in the wooden pails and stone jars. But the Egyptians, Egyptian magicians did the same by their magic arts. So Pharaoh remained obstinate and would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had foretold. So the, the blood, of course, is an indication that God is able to kill the god of the Nile. So the Nile was a god to the Egyptians, and by uh, God turning water into blood, he's basically saying that, see, I am stronger than the god of the Nile, I am able to kill him. And notice, this, is what, this was not so much for the, for the Israelites, who did not, at least collectively, worship the god of the Nile, but it was for the Egyptians. And I said earlier, God is, was and has always been as interested in saving Israel as he was in saving the Gentile nations. And that's why uh, Christ came. So it was never only a question of saving the Israelites, it was saving everybody. And you can see him doing that right there. He says, look what I can do. And as a result, instead of them worshipping God, they decide that they can resort to magic in order to do what he does. Now, how is that different? The difference is simple. God can turn water into blood. In other words, he can create something out of something else. Demons cannot. They don't have the power. But they have the power of substitution. They have control over matter, so it is not difficult for them to substitute one element to another. And therefore, they can have that power of substitution. Um, and that's what happened here. Okay? Now, let's move on to the second plague. The frogs uh, appear. The Lord to told Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your hand and your staff over the streams and canals and pools to make frogs over on the land of Egypt. Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. But the magicians did the same by their magic arts. They too made frogs over on the land of Egypt. To the Egyptians, the fraud is Heket. Uh, she was a goddess of childbirth, creation, and grain germination. And she was depicted as a frog, or a woman with the head of a frog, betraying her connection with water. As a water goddess, she was also a goddess of fertility, where she was particularly associated with the later stages of labor. In this way, the title of servants of Hecate may have been a title applied to her priestesses who were trained as midwives. So the ancient Egyptians say thousands of frogs appear all along the Nile at certain times of the year. This appearance of the reptile came to symbolize fruitfulness and coming to life. But in, in, in scripture, typically a frog is an unclean animal. It's an unclean animal. In the book of Revelation, for instance, the, fro the frog represents 
a, an evil spirit. You'll find that in the book of Revelation chapter 16 verse 13. Uh, I saw three unclean spirits like frogs come from the mouth of the dragon, from the mouth of the beast, and from the mouth of the false prophet. So, what do we see here? What is the interpretation of that second plague? It is disorder in childbirth. It is Remember, children were economic uh, represent an economic power because if you have a lot of children in your kingdom your army can be very large you have workers you have people who can do a lot but when you don't have these children then when you have a disorder in the childbirth it is effectively a sign of economic weakness and, and therefore it is a sign of um, um, uh, decay your your nation as as such is not able to survive and there and the fact now that these frogs cover the land and they come out of the water into the land where they cannot survive and live but they die is a sign that the fertility in Egypt is decaying and is dying and therefore it is a sign of economic uh, hardship the fourth plague uh, is where we see the flies and that is also related in uh, Exodus chapter 7, um, in uh, the verses, I'm sorry, 17 through 20, uh, chapter 8, 17 through 20. If you will not let my people go, I warn you, I will lose swarms of flies upon you and your servants and your subjects and your houses. The houses of the Egyptians and the very ground on which they stand shall be filled with swarms of flies. But on that day I will make an exception of the land of Goshen. There shall be no flies where my people dwell, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. I will make this distinction between my people and your people. This sign shall take place tomorrow. This the Lord did. Thick swarms of flies entered the house of pharaohs and the houses of servants. Throughout Egypt the land was infested with flies. Now what is fly a sign of, a symbol of? Why don't we want flies to land on food? Because they bring disease. So flies are an indication of disease and so what they indicate is the presence of sickness presence of illness and here God is protecting his people who are signed by the sign of the covenant as a result of and in the next step of course after the disease comes the death of livestock and in Exodus chapter 9, verse 1 through 6. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh and tell him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go to worship me. If you refuse to let them go and persist in holding them, I warn you, the Lord will afflict all your livestock in the field, your horses, asses, camels, herds, and flocks, with a very severe pestilence. But the Lord will distinguish between the livestock of Israel and that of Egypt, so that none belonging to the Israelites will die. The Lord added, Tomorrow the Lord shall do this in the land. And on the next day the Lord did so. All the livestock of the Egyptians, Egyptians died, but not one beast belonging to the Israelites. So livestock, as in the word indicates livestock, are stocks for, um, to, to, for sustenance, to be able to work the field, etc., and to, uh, for locomotion. So effectively God now is hitting all the um, uh, transportation means, and uh, the 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 power to be able to work the land and to eat, so that's now far more severe than the first two uh, that hit before. But also complementary, uh, God hit the water, then God hit uh, the uh, the uh, effectively 
the ability to uh, uh, bring uh, children to um, uh, bring forth children. He then sent pestilence and sickness, and now he is hitting the livestock. So you can see how complementary all those plagues are when looked together. Now, after all these plagues that hit all these areas, the life of the Egyptians were, was still untouched. And the intention was that after all of this, they may be able to repent and come back to God and therefore um, be converted. You can see how hard God is at work in trying to convert the Egyptians, not just the Israelites. Then the Lord said to Moses in chapter 9, verse 9 through 11, then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh and tell him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go to worship me. If you refuse to let them go and persist in holding them, I warn you, the Lord will afflict uh, all your livestock in the field, your horses, asses, camels, herds, and flocks with a very severe pestilence. But the Lord will distinguish between... Oh, we read already that. So... Um, Oh yeah, so, no, no let, let's continue. But the Lord will distinguish between the livestock of Israel and that of Egypt, so that none belonging to the Israelites will die. And, and the Lord did that. Okay, and on the next day, the Lord did so. All the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one beast belonging to the Israelites. But though Pharaoh's messengers informed him that not even one beast belonging to the Israelites had died, he still remained obdurate and would not let the people go. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take a double handful of soot from a furnace, and in the presence of Pharaoh, let Moses scatter it toward the sky. It will then turn into fine dust over the whole land of Egypt and cause festering boils on man and beast throughout the land. So they took soot from a furnace and stood in the presence of Pharaoh. Moses scattered it towards the, toward the sky and it caused festering boils on man and beast. The magicians could not stand in Moses' presence, for there were boils on the magicians no less than on the rest of the Egyptians. So I read the, the sixth bowl twice um, uh, to just put it in context with the seventh, where Moses, um, Pharaoh saw that, he, he knew that the uh, Israelites, uh, the, the livestock of the Israelites was saved, but still would refuse to listen. He was obdurate, which means that he, had, he was hardened in sin and uh, was therefore refusing to even contemplate the possibility of God's grace. And um, as a result of him being obdurate, notice it is Pharaoh who is um, effectively um, taking Egypt with him through these plagues, just as it is Moses effectively who is taking the Israelites with him. So we all collectively have impact on the lives of others it isn't just the question of Jesus and me. We are a family, and we within the family have responsibility towards each other. And you need to see that uh, in order to properly understand how, why God deal with us as a family and why the church is so important to Him, because the church is the family of God. Now you see that those, uh, those boils have effectively uh, caused this... Bo um, are attacking the men themselves. And now the magicians are unable to do anything. Why? Because their intent would be to heal themselves of the boys, but they don't have power of healing. So they are now stuck with it. Why did Moses take suit and scatter it to the sky? Because effectively, he is showing that God is more powerful than the sun and the sky and the gods of the air, basically, because he covers 
the, su- the, 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 the sky was something that is black. He blackens it and uh, shows that God has the power to effectively take away the goodness that the sun and the sky would bring to Egyptians to their, to their life and, inf- and, and bring instead festering boils on their skin to show them that they are effectively under a curse. In the book of Revelation, we're going to see something similar, but instead of God using a suit, God gives power to the sun to burn man, which is a different way of doing it, but it's the same principle, it's the same approach that we see here in the ten plagues. And again, God, the Egyptians, the the Pharaoh refused to even contemplate what has happened. Now we move then to the seventh plague, uh, in chapter 9, verse 13 through 28. Then the Lord told Moses, early tomorrow... Go to uh, present yourself to Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go to worship me. Or this time I will hurl all my blows upon you and your servants and your subjects, that you may know that there is none like me anywhere on earth. Notice now the uh, ratcheting up the in, in intensity. I will hurl all my blows upon you. There is no restraint. For by now I would have stretched out my hand and struck you and your subjects with such pestilence as would wipe you from the earth. But this is why I have spared you, to show you my power and to make my name resound throughout the earth. Why did I spare you? To show you my name, to show you my glory, so that what? So that you come to recognize me as God and you may be saved. Not just you, but throughout the earth. So it isn't just about the Israelites, it's also about everybody else. Will you, will you still block the way for my people by refusing to let them go? I warn you then tomorrow at this hour I will rain down such fierce hail as there has never been in Egypt from the day the nation was founded up to the present. Therefore order all your livestock and whatever else you have in the open fields to be brought to a place of safety. Whatever man or beast remains in the fields and is not brought to shelter shall die when the hail comes upon them. Notice that God is only interested in the economy here. He's basically telling Pharaoh, let people know and tell them to take shelter. This is about to happen. Let them take shelter. Some of Pharaoh's servants feared the warning of the Lord and hurried their servants and livestock opted to shelter. What is that an indication of? An indication that even though Pharaoh's heart is hardened, some of his servants were not. And they feared the warning of the Lord and did as they were told. Others, however, did not take the warning of the Lord to heart and left their servants and livestock in the fields. The Lord then said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward the sky, that hail may fall upon the entire land of Egypt, on man and beast, and every growing thing in the land of Egypt. When Moses stretched out his staff toward the sky, the Lord sent forth hail and peals of thunder, lightning, flashes toward the earth, and the Lord rained down hail upon the land of Egypt. And lightning constantly flashed throughout the hail, such fierce hail as had never been seen in the land since Egypt became a nation. It stuck down every man and beast that was in the open throughout the land of Egypt. It beat down every growing thing and splintered every tree in the fields. Only in the land of Goshen, where the Israelites dwelt, was there no hail. The Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said to them, I have sinned again, the Lord is just, it is I and my subjects who are at fault. There's a difference here between him and his servants. He's doing it simply because he's opportunistic. He's trying to hold on to what he has but avoid the punishment. So many people will basically come and say, 
go to confession and say, I'm sorry, I did this and that and the other, but they're really not contrite. They are not concerned about what their sins have done to God. They're really concerned about saving their own skin. And, and without true repentance, a sense of, I did something wrong, I must change it, the intention of changing what they've done and improving their moral stand, there is no real confession. Alright? And um, we saw the hail coming down. We, we see also the flashes, the lightning, which will become a hallmark of the covenantal presence of God. So later on, when God will come down on, ex- in, on the mountain in, in the, in the, in the, on Mount Sinai in the desert, when the Israelites were there, we will see also lightning, peals of thunder, flashes, which is a sign of the covenantal presence of God. God as bringing forth a covenant, and recall that then He effectively gave Moses the Ten Commandments. And we will see it also uh, frequently in the book of Revelation, the same signs of God's presence uh, related to the covenant. And then... Um, the eighth plague then happens in chapter 10, 1 through 12. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh, for I have made him and his servants obdurate, in order that I may perform these signs of mine among them, and that you may recount to your son, grandson, how ruthlessly I dealt with the Egyptians and what signs I wrought upon them, so that you may know that I am the Lord. By now, the Egyptians are not, will not effectively come back. I mean, if after all of this they didn't come back, nothing will them come back. So, God now is telling Moses, I'm going to do these signs among them for your benefit, for the benefit of the believers, so that later on you may recount to your children. Why? To gloat about what God did to the Egyptians? Not at all. To remind the children and all the Israelites how God will treat them should they disobey God. How God will effectively bring upon them the curses of the covenant just as he did with Egypt. And if you recall my overall, if you recall the, the historical timeline we looked at, we see that this is indeed what God did. Because he destroyed the kingdom of Israel. He also destroyed Jerusalem twice. So, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and told him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to submit to me? Let my people go to worship me. If you refuse to let my people go, I warn you, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your country. Then they shall cover the ground, so that the ground itself will not be visible. They shall eat out the remnant you saved unheard from the hail, as well as all the foliage that had since sprouted in your fields. They shall fill your houses and the houses of your servants and all the Egyptians, such as such a sight your fathers and grandfathers have not seen from the day they first settled on this soil up to the present day. With that he turned and left Pharaoh. Notice that God is um, punishing Pharaoh not because he doesn't let the Israelites leave, as in political independence, it is because he doesn't let them worship. You do not let them worship me. So, when a nation or a country refuse the right of worship of the true God, these things will eventually befall it. Not essentially, not in a literal sense of locusts and, and, and frogs, etc. Because as I said, the particulars of every plague is suited to the culture and the people at the time. But the pattern behind it will apply consistently throughout the ages. 
But Pharaoh's servant said to him, How long must you be a menace to us? Let the men go to worship the Lord their God. Do you not yet realize that Egypt is being destroyed? So Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh, who said to them, You may go and worship the Lord your God, but how many of you will go? So now Pharaoh is having pressure from the Egyptians themselves, who are saying, You're destroying all of Egypt. Let these people go. Young and old must go with us, Moses answered. Our sons and daughters, as well as our flocks and herds, must accompany us. That is what a feast of, of the Lord means to us. The Lord help you, Pharaoh replied. I will, if, I ever, if I ever let your little ones go with you, clearly you have some evil in mind. No, no, just your men can go and worship the Lord. After all, that is what you want. With that, they were driven from Pharaoh's presence. Now, Moses is saying to Pharaoh, Look, every one of us has to go. All of us. And Pharaoh answers, Ah, that means you have some evil intent. You're running away. Why is he saying that? Because in the, in the again, historical background, in the ancient cultures, only men worshipped. Only men went to the temple and offered worship, even in Egypt. So, for Moses to say, Every one of us must go, he's basically telling Pharaoh, Look, we're, we're taking off. We're leaving Egypt. And that's why Pharaoh answers the way he does. I will not let you go. Only the men can go. Not your little ones. Why didn't then God, knowing that, ask for Moses to bring everybody? Because this is how important the worship is to, to God. Everybody worships God. You don't leave anybody behind. You don't leave your little ones. You don't leave uh, the, the, your children. Everybody comes. Therefore... This is one fundamental reason why we Catholics believe in the baptism of infants. We do not leave them behind. We do not leave them aside. We believe that we have to obey God's commandment and bring everybody to Him in worship. So when you go to church, don't leave your kids behind. Bring them with you. Very well. The ninth plagues follow, which is darkness. And we find that in Exodus 10, verse 21 through 29. And the, uh, the Lord says to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward the sky, that over the land of Egypt there might be such intense darkness that one can feel it. And Moses did that. And that uh, darkness effectively stayed for three days. All right? For three days, but all the Israelites had light. Now, the darkness was also interior. It wasn't just exterior. It was a, a form of internal um, suffering, internal anguish, internal terror. When you cannot see physically around you, um, you're forced to contemplate within yourself what is in there. And because of your obduracy and your refusal to receive the life of to listen to the Lord, you basically get to see what's in there, which is not particularly pretty. And that leads to anguish and leads to a great, uh, leads to depression, to psychological problems. And it leads to uh, an immense level of suffering, which is even greater than the physical one that already suffered. As a result of this, Pharaoh tells them, you can leave. And uh, he says, I will, and then they are about to leave. But then again, uh, one more plague comes about them. And it's interesting. It is interesting that the last plague, of course, is the death of the firstborn, which you can find in chapter 11, verse 1 through 8. I don't have time to go through it in detail, in particular to sort of deal with some of the verses there that seem very strange. How, why would the Egyptians give uh, the Israelites gold? As it's related in... Um, 
in um, uh, verse 3, the Lord indeed made the Egyptians well disposed toward the people. Moses himself was very highly regarded by Pharaoh's servants and the people in the land of Egypt. But you might find some clues if, and, uh, about one way to explain that in a book called Things Hidden Since the Foundation of the World. Things Hidden Since the Foundation of the World by René Girard. G-I-R-A-R-D, Girard in English. Uh, uh, Rini uh, would be, I suppose, the uh, uh, pronunciation. But uh, God is now hitting the firstborn. Why? Because, as I said earlier, uh, Pharaoh considers himself to be God. And how is his, um, uh, if you will, his... um, uh, God status preserved. He's a God. He brings forth a God. Therefore, it is preserved through his dynasty. When Had God killed Pharaoh, his son, and therefore the, the Pharaoh's dynasty would have been preserved. But by killing his firstborn, the one who is supposed to ascend to power after him, he puts an end to his dynasty and therefore to his power as a God. And that is what happened in that plague when God told Moses that that's what, will, that's what I will do. One thing I would like to point out to you is that God told the, uh, the Israelites, in order to, to, to evade this plague, you Israelites must, must do two things, briefly. You must kill a lamb, three years old, spotless. You must put blood on the lintel of your doors, and then you must eat the lamb. If you do not do these things, your firstborn shall die. So notice, they have to roast the lamb, and they have to eat it, meaning they have to take a lamb, change its nature by roasting it. So therefore, you change the composition of the lamb. When you roast it, you change it, and you eat it. If you do not eat the lamb, your firstborn dies. Whether you're vegetarian or not, whether you like lamb or not, whether you think it's important or not, doesn't matter. If you do not eat the lamb, your firstborn dies. And that, of course, is a prefiguration of the Eucharist. Amen, amen, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. And you combine that with the word of St. John the Baptist, Behold the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. You see how this passage, the last plague, is not just about... Egypt or about Israel is really about the Son of God, about the salvation of the world that will be instituted, will be brought about by Jesus Christ through His church, by the ministry of His priests, so that through the Eucharist He can feed all of us. And that is how we understand the importance of these events that had happened in Egypt and throughout the Bible. We understand them in the light of the new covenant, in the light of the cross. For it is from the cross that every part of scripture is properly illuminated. And the only place where you will find the crucifix, meaning Jesus on the cross, not just an empty cross, the only place where you will find him is in the church. You will find him in the church. Why? Because it isn't just a symbol the crucifix, but beneath the crucifix is the tabernacle where indeed the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, true God and true man is substantially present 
waiting for us, and we go to celebrate him Sunday after Sunday, so that by the celebration, and unlike those Egyptians who did not listen to him, by the celebration, we may receive eternal life and live with him forever. God bless you. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Corbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.carbono.com. Thank you and God bless you.